Hi there, welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Urban Empire, developed by Reborn Games and published by Calypso. Calypso provided History Respond with a review copy of this game. Urban Empire is a city management game set in modern Europe. The player controls a mayoral dynasty through 200 years of history, beginning in the 1820s. On top of the usual city management fare of building districts and infrastructure, players must also negotiate construction with an elected city council, which can determine your funding as well as your schemes for urban planning. I've invited Dr. Kyle Shelton onto the show to help me contextualize the history of urban development and planning. Kyle is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Kinder Institute for Urban Research at Rice University in Houston. Kyle holds a PhD in history from the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Shelton's research focuses on how the intersections of transportation, urban development, and politics shape the built and natural environments of cities in the past and today. Kyle has a forthcoming book entitled Power Moves, Transportation, Politics, and Development in Houston that will be published with UT Press in January. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Glad to be here. So, Kyle, Urban Empire is a city management game, but unlike the vast majority of games in that genre, it doesn't give the player free willed over city management. Instead, the player has to present their ideas for city development to a city council for voting. The game places the beginning of this relationship in the Industrial Revolution. I was wondering, could you tell us what's the general historical relationship between mayors and city councils, and how did that relationship change during the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think uh, for those of us who grew up with SimCity, that's a really rude awakening from the, yeah. the other game yeah. to, to not just be able to dictate what I want when I want it. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, it's a, it's a longer history and I don't know the, the European context quite as well as the American, but I think, um, kind of parallels to city councils and sort of representative bodies that could check everybody from monarchs to, you know, later day presidents and prime ministers, um, are happening in both Europe and the United States, um, you know, really in, in a form that we would recognize, I would say, from the 1500s and the 1600s in Europe up to, obviously, the 1700s and 1800s in America. But the more modern-day city councils that are um, far more uh, a part of the democratic institutions, especially in America, are coming in the late 1800s in the U.S., and I know they come earlier in, in Britain. They're often spurring out of concerns um, from the electorate about either corruption or kind of a concentration of power in, in the hands of, of a mayor or of an, another, another leader in a city. So, for example, in the American context, a lot of them came during kind of the precursor to the progressive movement and during the progressive movement um, right around the turn of the uh, 20th century where there was a lot of concern about corruption and about over-concentration of power in political parties and in political machines. Um, and so city councils are, are really seen and have been seen for a while as a check on a lot of that power to do exactly as you described in the game, to say no to the whims of a political leader or in the, in the case of a political machine to a dynasty that could ostensibly without a check just kind of do what it wants to do over and over again. Yeah, it's a really frustrating mechanic 
uh, in the game. I, you know, I, I think it's great that it seems to be historically accurate. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, playing the game and trying to get a district built, a district that is in the best interest of the city, is in the best interest of you as the mayor, as, as in control of this small town, and then to have the city council just say no for very difficult reasons. Say, oh, it could be uh, it's too expensive, or it could be that it's it doesn't have enough industry set aside or a space for industry. To have that thrown in your face as a player, I've got to say, kind of discourages you from wanting to play the game. Because I think, like you said, you know, I'm, I and so many other people I know are so used to that kind of godlike control uh, over a city like you have like in SimCity, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's actually one of the things that struck me about Urban Empire is that it is, it is really accurate in that way, right? I, I think if you asked any actually elected public official, they would say it's incredibly frustrating to work with all the other elected officials and the bureaucrats in, in city government. Um, and so it's really, I, I think, a quite fantastic if incredibly mundane uh, approach to the game, right? Like it, it, mundane in that it is remarkably accurate to that process. Like you don't, if you actually want to think about what it means to build a city, it's something that you do have to negotiate from those earliest days when it's literally you deciding what to put down and what are the first structures and what are the first services all the way up to, it goes, what, up to World War II or fi- fictional yeah. World War II? Up to- I, I think it goes past World War II just a bit. Yeah, so that, that same negotiation process happens and gets only more complicated as you go through. Um, so that's really a great piece of that. Yeah. So like a lot of other city management games, Urban Empire provides the player with a mass of accurate up-to-date data on everything from citizen happiness to industrial output. How common is it for cities to have access to this sort of information, especially information related to everyday problems and grievances of average citizens? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a good question. And I think even just 20 years ago or so, it probably would not have been as common as it is today, uh, as we see more and more of a push to use sort of big data across all platforms and in a number of venues in modern life today. I think in particular, city governments are a place where that that push is really felt and is being pursued kind of by cities at all levels. Uh, and that, that really extends to everything like you just laid out. And, and really a lot of the components that are in the game are things that cities try to track, right? It's not just miles of street and amount or, you know, density of homes and, and what type of mix they have between commercial and zoning, all things that cities certainly have been tracking for centuries. Um, but really just like the game, trying to figure out if citizens are satisfied, what are the services that the city is not providing well, or what are the holes in those services, what could be added, how, you know, all of that information is stuff that cities are trying to um, collect these days and are doing a better and better job of that with, in particular, the advent of user-based apps on phones. So lots of cities now have 311 apps where you can just, as the user, or, you know, as a citizen, say, hey, there's a pothole right here, right? And you can mm-hmm. drop a pin and 
the city gets it and public works could be out there the next day if you're mm. in a in a well-operating city. Yeah, I was going to say, does that actually work? Because <laughs> I don't think that works in my city. In some places, I think it does. <laughs> but, you know, a couple of days, a couple of days. Um, and yeah, you see more and more um, older, there's still some traditional tools like citizen satisfaction surveys, but even those are becoming up, more updated and much more um, digitally inclined and they can be, mm. you know, sent out to a larger audience and are more easily filled out and updatable. Um, and all of that stuff is really being brought into consideration of decisions by cities more and more, right? It's not, I wouldn't say quite the same way you as the mayor in this game might say, oh, I really need to make my citizens happy. You know, their, their happiness is going down. There, there is kind of a, a realistic corollary there with, well, we're getting a lot of complaints about sewer systems or traffic or police response time, right? Let's figure out yeah. a way to respond to that. That's a that's a really realistic piece of what a lot of city governments do today. Yeah. And one of the things that I was kind of disappointed that didn't seem to come up in the game, but it seems that would come up pretty often in everyday life is the fact that this data and the collection of this data seems like it could become really politicized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm sense that certain political parties might have an interest in certain problems and then other problems that they're not interested in or things that they would make the party look bad if they were focused on they kind of you know try to push the data a certain way so it maybe disappears or is maybe relegated to you know not front and center yeah. does that happen at all sure i mean i think we see that with the concerns uh under the trump administration right when he took over right to consider whether or not the epa's data would be removed um a lot of researchers quickly downloaded a lot of information about um discrimination in housing or just or affordable housing data national that was nationally kept by hud because of concerns of that as well um so whether or not, and some of that data was taken down, right? The HUD's website changed pretty quickly and removed some of the data and some of the tools that were in place under the Obama administration. At the city level, it definitely can. I think one of the other big challenges, um, you know, a city, the city itself, of course, can always put out or not put out whatever data it wants, depending on the level of transparency that a mayor or uh, an administration is open to, right? Um, so if it's data city controls, for sure, they can release or not release whatever they are uh, interested in seeing. I think what happens today with that trove of data, a lot of it, and this gives me a chance to shill for the Kinder Institute, um, a lot of research institutes are those places, though, that keep that data. And so that kind of changes that equation where um, cities are, are forced in a way because they are not necessarily the houser or the maintainer of the data to say, well... What are you learning from that? Or what can we learn from that to improve it, right? So the transparency is kind of built in in a way when the data is more democratically, transparently available. And that often happens through universities and, and through research institutions that are looking to find ways to help the city improve by, by analyzing that data. Right. Oh, that's a good plug. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So uh, the starting city in urban empire is a planned city created in Central Europe during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, And the player with the support of the city council can determine the size of districts as well as the mixture in each district between industrial, commercial, and residential zones. 
How common was this type of ordered and deliberate urban planning, uh, especially in cities that emerged during the Industrial Revolution? It became more and more common, uh, I think, especially as the Industrial Revolution really took off. So you you see this transition from what would have been the more artisanal uh, economy, right? I think that's a fair way to call it pre-Industrial Revolution, um, where if I'm a blacksmith, I'm probably working below my house. Or if I'm a shopkeeper, I live above my house, right? And that, that really applied to almost everybody, right? No matter what your profession um, with some exceptions, politicians in particular, and obviously people who can't work out of their home. But as that changes and as the sites of production become larger and larger and you get manufacturing and you get industrial uses, pretty early on cities are cognizant of the fact that they don't want a tannery right next to a lot of people's homes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so zoning becomes a part of most cities uh, pretty early in the 1800s um, and becomes more formalized and more complicated as you move um, up to today, right? And and now you have it where a single a single use like residential zoning could have in a in a given city seven or eight different categories where an R1 use might have a particular limitation on no industry or X mm-hmm. percent of industry or industry within no industry within 500 feet of a residence and R7 might be nothing but residential, for example, right? There, there can, there could be any number of um, complicated uh, zoning arrangements that a city could put into place to, to maintain those different um, boundaries and those different zones. Um, And it is, it does, it it has been mostly oriented around separating residential and industrial um, throughout it. And so, yeah, is that, is that primarily a safety issue, like you said, or is there ever any concern about environmental impact as well? Kind of non-human. Yeah. I think, I think those, those concerns are later developing, right. As, as we might, as we might assume, right. That worker safety and environmental quality and protection are both things that emerge, um, kind of for the first time again around the progressive era, right. Um, Mm -hmm. at least in the United States and, at that first stage, they only minorly impact decisions. Um, it's not really in the U.S., at least until the 60s and 70s, that those become kind of the paramount concerns or at least uh, have have the equal weight to economic production. Um, so I would, I would hazard to say that in most cases earlier on, it wasn't so much, aside from wanting to remove industry and manufacturing from the wealthiest communities, which absolutely would have been political and, and would have been like, you know, the 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 millionaires aren't putting up with the smells coming directly into their backyards. Um, for the most part, it would have been much more about logistics and things like transportation and access to waterways or roadways um, or even just the space, right? So it's easier. And the game actually does a nice job of this because you're you're creating a new zone, right? It's it's much easier to from scratch build an industrial zone where the infrastructure is going to be different and can connect to main thoroughfares and connect to other pieces in a different way than if you were trying to build it amidst residential homes on top of residential infrastructure. That's one of the things that I liked about this game's kind of hands-off approach to construction, because with like an old SimCity or other uh, city planner game, you usually had to do all the infrastructure building yourself. And that included, you know, kind of intricately planning out the roads and then also the sewer systems, the power lines in this game, 
the game takes care of all of that mm-hmm. nitty gritty stuff for you. Yeah. Your job is to convince the city council that all of this stuff is necessary, which uh, can be a, a debilitating and frustrating process. But uh, at least it's not as debilitating and frustrating as you know finding out that you can't put a sewer line in, in next to a particular road where you've got you've built up you know sure, some sure. Uh, uh, some houses already, or you've already got a commercial zone. It's probably uh, good that they stopped the level of detail that one would have to go into to really think about the city. I am an infrastructural scholar, however, so I was a little sad that you didn't get to kind of (laughs) direct where roads might go or, you know, as you move more towards the car world, uh, either make decisions about changing how your city's growing or thinking about how those different forms of transportation infrastructure uh, kind of interact with one another. But Asking somebody to be the mayor, the planning department head, and the public works director probably would have been too much for one game. That's too much, yeah. <laughs> it would be like a real job instead of a game at that point. So, um, One of the things I thought was interesting is, I mean, this game was created by European developers, so it's not really surprising that it's set in Europe. But the idea of a planned city in Central Europe... Uh, even during the Industrial Revolution, that is a very odd idea. Whereas I think it's a much, it's a much more common concept in the United States, where there's so much relatively empty territory in which you could carefully plan out and you know establish uh, zones. You could have grid street formations. I mean, to what extent? Are a lot of American cities planned cities? I mean, especially after the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and it's not totally, it's certainly not completely foreign to Europe, right? I mean, the best example of that is Paris. It's completely redone and gutted and redone, right? And, right, right. But that's what I'm saying is it's it's odd to have a, yeah, a totally new that's planned true. city. Yeah, that's true. Whereas a lot of the old cities in Europe, yes, like you said, were completely destroyed mm-hmm. uh, during the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of from scratch planned cities. That's why you have so many that are well laid out in perfect little grids, right? Everything from, I mean, Austin has this to a certain extent. Once you, you can kind of see where the initial plan of cities starts to fade away or becomes the city was growing too fast to kind of maintain it because the grid starts to fade away and you get start to get diagonal streets and things get cut, cut across in weird ways. Um, Houston has that. Um, a lot of kind of frontier cities, even Chicago, when it was first laid out, was laid out in a really straightforward way. But I think that's that's mostly just the grid, right? Once once you had that grid, that didn't necessarily mean that the city itself was neat and orderly. Um, and that's probably the last description that anyone would give of a kind of frontier western new town in the 1830s or 1840s. <laughs> um, but they at least kind of had had that goal in mind of here's here's what a city should be looking like at that point. Um, and then you know there's there are obviously there are consistent kind of planning cycles within cities, right? So even if it's not, even if it wasn't the building of an entirely brand new city after the 1850s, 1860s, at least in in sort of the Midwest to East, um, you start to, in the 1870s and 1880s is, is um, when you see more landscaping starting. Um, that's when you get to start to see the Olmstead parks and all the designs of new kind of carriage roads and thinking of how these cities are starting to look as design spaces. And that kind of leads into the city beautiful movement. And there, you know, there have been, there have been sort of strains of here's what our cities should look like. 
And and there's actually an interesting parallel then I think to that question of in terms of rethinking and invention or reinventing a city sort of in the U.S. context again at least in sort of the 20s to 50s utopian vision of the city of the future, right? So you get Frank Lloyd Wright, you get GM's uh, model at the New York World Fair that is kind of the prototypical here is what, you know, it's not flying cars, but it's major highways going through this futuristic city. Um, and that, in a lot of ways, was an attempt, and, and definitely Frank, some of Frank Wright's thinking and, and um, designs were this kind of idea of, well, here's a new way for us to design. We have this car, we have the car, we have these highways. Why don't we just build a totally new city that we could plan from scratch? And, you know, I think you see iterations of that, especially in planning. Um, up to today, you could you could make an argument that even something like new urbanism is a is a particular approach to city building, right? And and there have been from scratch new urbanist uh, developments. Seaside Florida is was not really there; it was not a city, and it was built uh, I think in the 1990s within kind of urban new urbanist um, precepts, and and was designed to to look like to match with all of those goals and match with the forms of that um, ideology, basically. Mm. So one of the things that I noticed while playing the game uh, was that as time progressed, as you moved from the 19th century into the 20th century and then kind of into the mid 20th century, you saw more and more fences appear in the city, uh, kind of uh, establishing boundaries, not only between residences, but then also between different districts within the town. And so I was wondering what, what brought about this transition from a free roam landscape to one that's kind of marked and demarcated with fence lines. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't, I wouldn't say that there's kind of like a consistent movement towards that in any given really structural way. Right. Um, that, that particularly with fences, I think property rights and the conception of property rights and the protection of those through it or, you know, through symbols like fences, but also through homeowners associations and more invisible demarcations and boundaries. Um, that, that kind of continues to grow, I would say, as cities become denser and more populous throughout the Industrial Revolution, right? Because people begin to have that sense of, wow, there are so many people here now that I, I do need to kind of demarcate what is mine and what is not, what is not yours, right? Um, particularly in the earlier parts of the industrial revolution when wealthy and poor residents are still pretty close together, right? Oftentimes in you have the wealthy family in the main house and you have the servants living on the alleyway behind or in a a separate home um, or right nearby. And so there is sort of an impetus to say, how do we separate either physically or psychologically these two uses? And I think in most cases, there's there's more of the psychological boundering, right? And it's either boundering. I just made up a word. In, <laughs> Sounds good to me. In most cases, there's more of a psychological establishment of boundaries um, where you're going to see either social norms are going to keep people out, right? And and that's that's visible, obviously, in segregation and discrimination. There are both social and legal norms that would say to African-Americans, for example, this is, this is the sector that you live in, right? It's both legally prescribed through redlining and the lack of availability of units outside of a given neighborhood. But then those are also, those social, those 
legal norms are reinforced by social norms, right? Where it's yeah. teenagers from the two different communities fighting over a given block or somebody crossing into a neighborhood where they're not supposed to, right? And that that's obviously an extension away from the question of the fence. But I think those those systems are pretty parallel and, and kind of point to that same tension that a fence would and that move towards recognizing and protecting individual property rights more um, as those cities as cities became denser and as the need to to especially I would say in America um, claim what is yours and what is not others became more and more pressing. Right. Well, so that does it for my questions. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? I was just I I really enjoyed the kind of in depth. Uh, nerdiness of the game. I really like, <laughs> and it's kind of what we touched on before in terms of, yeah, it kind of sucks to get city council approval. And I liked that you had to influence people and ask for their vote. And, you know, you could kind of over the long term, over a series of months, um, you know, try to nudge a given party and its representatives to support your tax rate. Um, and I also, I only, I only got a chance to see a few of them, but some of the pop-ups that ask you things like, Hey, the press is is has gotten word of this project that you're trying to do, or your rival is, you know, shaming you in the media. That struck me also as really accurate, and I liked that they added that wrinkle in, um, mm-hmm. where it, it, it again it kind of reminded you, as you said earlier, that you didn't have the the godlike ability that you have in SimCity. That there's there's sort of a there's the check of the city council, but there's also that nice moment to say if this were a real city, there would be these other eyes, right? And there would be citizens paying attention to what you're doing and it matters how you respond to those things. And so I thought that was a pretty nuanced way to kind of work in those political machinations outside of the council itself. Yeah, I thought those mechanics were really clever. And like you said, I think that adds a lot to the idea of accuracy, Mm -hmm. but this game left me wondering how much we actually want accuracy (laughs) as game players. Because like I said, you know, playing this game was very frustrating, Mm -hmm. not being able to do what I wanted when I wanted to. And maybe that's, maybe that's not so much this game's fault as it is the genre that this game is set in. I mean, if it was, uh, you know, in a different genre, I think those mechanics might actually play better, but because you've got that kind of, uh, kind of inherited experience yeah. through SimCity and through other city planners where you have this godlike power mm. to have that taken away from you <laughs> is very, very frustrating, even if it does make the history sure. in the game more accurate. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely fair. I can see that for sure. Uh, and at the same time though, I think what I, what I felt myself feeling as a person who, you know, talks about current day cities and talks about planning a lot was almost thinking, well, oh, this is kind of an interesting test case, right? You're not going to make a case study from the game, but you could almost say, hey, let's, what, what happens in this game if you build a city that looks like this, right? How does that, in, how does that impact these various different classes, right? And it's not, it's an interesting exercise into, think, into thinking about how you could use a game to really in, understand the intricacies of a city being run, right? And you're you're absolutely right that that is, I imagine, frustrating as a game player. But if I think if you come at it from that angle of this is actually just a really interesting exercise to kind of conceptualize the way that at least a, a snippet of how a city might run. Um, mm-hmm. To me, it was actually kind of exciting to think about doing. Mm. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of History Respond, please hit the like button below and subscribe to our YouTube series. If you're feeling especially generous, please consider contributing to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respond. Thank you.